You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Some good news, ladies. I think this is good news mostly for the ladies and save Kansas. There hasn't been much good in the news for the ladies lately, so we're going to take a moment and savor this win. A new dating app just dropped. Dropping along with it, your chances of winding up in a restaurant sitting across the table from someone who stormed the Capitol on January 6th and washes his Trump flags more often than he washes his sheets. Why don't you tell us all about it, Ryan? Hey guys, I'm Ryan. I've got to tell you about something I am so excited to announce. A dating app for all of us conservatives. It's called The Right Stuff, and it's launching this September. What I love most about it is that it's invite only, so not just anyone can join. First of all, it's free to use. And for my ladies, you'll never have to pay because we all get premium subscriptions for simply inviting a couple friends. Gentlemen, If you want access to premium, that's on you. And by the way, those are the only two options, ladies and gentlemen. So this new dating site, The Right Stuff, invite only, which means it's not enough to be an asshole. You got to know an asshole or know two assholes, two lady assholes. If you're a lady asshole yourself and you want a free premium membership. Gentlemen, no matter how big an asshole you are, no matter how many assholes you know, you're going to have to pay for that premium membership. Oh, and of course, ladies and gentlemen are the only options at the right stuff. Non-lady, non-gentleman need not apply. So, sorry, all you assigned female at birth, non-binary mask-presenting allosexuals out there. You know, the kind of vulva havers who sometimes go by traditionally masculine names, like Ryan. You're not wanted, at the right stuff. No dates with anti-choice Trump supporters for you. Ryan also lets us know that pronouns, just generally pronouns, not wanted on the right stuff, which seems like it's going to get pretty awkward pretty quick, seeing as pretty much everyone uses pronouns all of the time and not just gender outlaws. Oh, this just in. I looked up Ryan just now. I googled the name. Turns out Ryan is a name for both boys and girls which makes Ryan the they-them of first names. Anyway, Ryan's pitch for The Right Stuff closes with this. We're sorry that you've had to endure years of bad dates and wasted time with people that don't see the world our way, the right way. Okay, right-wingers, or is stuffers your preferred pronoun now? Because I'm happy to use it if it is. Just wanted to jump in here and say, right stuffers, you weren't enduring bad dates. You weren't on bad dates. You were bad dates. And this idea that right-wingers, right-stuffers were somehow being oppressed on other dating apps because other people might be using pronouns they didn't like there or dating people they wouldn't date themselves. It's like the MAGA folks who were losing their shit on Facebook last week after Cracker Barrel, which is a restaurant chain, That has a lot of locations in the South, the restaurant chain that got anti-gay famous in the early 1990s for firing their gay waiters. That restaurant chain announced they would now be serving impossible breakfast sausage, a plant-based protein. Not exclusively, not instead of regular ground-up pig sausages, but as an option 
for people who prefer plant-based proteins. But somehow just knowing that someone at the next table might be eating something that you wouldn't eat yourself, that drove some right-wingers crazy. In the same way, I guess, that knowing someone on a dating app you might also be on is out there using pronouns you wouldn't use or seeking partners you wouldn't want to have sex with, that makes right stuffers crazy angry too. Look, right stuffers, you don't want to eat the plant-based protein. You don't have to eat the plant-based protein. Just because it's on the menu doesn't mean you have to order it. The straight waiters at Cracker Barrel aren't going to come to your table and shove fake meat down your throat. Likewise, you were required to date the AFAB mass-presenting NBs on Tinder who took the name Ryan after coming out as furries and adopting Kit Kitten as their pronouns. Still, we're happy for you. We're happy that you have the right stuff. We're happy that you have a place you can call your own. A little MAGA Israel, I guess. A place where right stuffers can go get stuffed. Every right winger who leaves Tinder or OkCupid or Bumble or Field enhances the experience of getting on those apps or remaining on those apps for the people they've left behind. And quick word with the gays and lesbians. I don't know what the policy is at the right stuff about us, but I suspect we're not wanted there. Just as we weren't wanted on eHarmony, Back in the day. Remember eHarmony? This will be everlasting. The commercials were ubiquitous in the early 90s. It was a dating site founded by an evangelical Christian and clinical psychologist who developed some very special compatibility model algorithms that could supposedly match people with their perfect mate. But they didn't let gays and lesbians on eHarmony at first because... Well, not because the evangelical founder hated our gay guts, although he did, but because, he said, his models, his compatibility models, were optimized for opposite-sex couples, and he didn't want to get our gay hopes up by letting us on eHarmony. And we did what we often do, what we have to do. We sued. Gays and lesbians brought a class-action lawsuit against eHarmony and won because this kind of discrimination is... Rightly illegal, so eHarmony had to open its virtual doors, its virtual legs to us too. And they should have had to do that because this kind of discrimination is against the law as it should be. Like I said, I don't know if the right stuff is barring gays and lesbians just like they're barring non-lady, non-gentleman individuals. And I don't care. But if they are, maybe let's not sue this time. Because it seems to me that if the worst people on every other dating app want to take their bats and balls and their Trump flags and MAGA hats and go home or go elsewhere to get stuff, just fuck the fuck off. Let them. Good. Bye. Good riddance. Let's not force our way in, all us gays and lesbians and bisexuals and pansexuals and omnisexuals and all the other bespoke sexuals out there. Let's not class the joint up by showing up in the joint. Let's not make it look more attractive or like more fun than it is or likely isn't. And hey, straight ladies, the guys you were trying to avoid on Tinder, if they're headed to the right stuff, they just got a little easier to avoid on Tinder and OkCupid and Bumble and Field and everywhere else. It is a win. Again, it's not a Kansas-sized win, 
but it is a win. All right, coming up on the Micro and the Magnum Savage Lovecast, science and health reporter Benjamin Ryan, who has been covering the monkeypox outbreak for NBC News, joins me to talk about co-ed bathhouses. Apparently they're a thing. Are they a risk? Ben is here with an answer. And on the Magnum Savage Lovecast, subscribe at savage.love. Chrissy Stroop is a leader in the exvangelical movement. She's here to explain what the exvangelical movement is. She's also a trans woman, drops by to help a listener of mine from a similar religious background navigate a tricky pronoun situation. And this week's Savage Love, the column has everything from cock rings that are too tight to standards that are too high to Swedes that are... Very pregnant and craving ass, all that and more in a quickies Savage Love column, which you can read right now at savage.love slash savage love. All right, let's get to the calls. Hi, Dan Nassi and the Tax Heavy Rescues. I'm a 30-something cis woman, polyamorous, living in Europe, in Brussels, and I have a question about 30 talk. I've never been someone who would say I'm into it, but I'm discovering that it's something I want to explore and that some things really work well with me and excite my brain. <laughs> but I um, have a bit of an issue in terms of languages. I currently speak three languages and I have partners with whom I exchange and speak in different languages depending on the partner. And the issue with dirty talking is I seem to have different reactions in terms of the same word, but expressed in different languages. Let's just say that in general terms, I find dirty talk in my mother tongue way more aggressive than in uh, my secondary and third language. So I was wondering what your take on it is, any tips or suggestions to make it work, and maybe some experiences from other callers. Uh, I'd be really interested uh, to exchange. So on the subject of dirty talk, uh, I was listening to former Republican Representative Denver Riggleman get interviewed on the Bulwark podcast. Riggleman's the GOP member of Congress who was primaried and turfed out of office after officiating at a gay staffer's wedding. Anyways, on the Bulwark, being interviewed by host Charlie Sykes about the January 6th committee, and Riggleman, who is a military officer and worked for the National Security Agency, I promise you this has something to do with dirty talk, was talking about the job the January 6th committee is doing and said this. Like I've told people, they're going to tell you what they're going to tell you, the first hearing. They're, then they're going to tell you, which is hearings, you know, two through five, and then they're going to tell you what they told you. And that's really a, a military briefing. They're setting this up almost as sort of looking at a course of action or looking at uh, sort of an after action report. Tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. I That's my advice when it comes to nervous newbies and dirty talk. And I was so surprised to hear listening to a former NSA, National Security Agency officer, that that's also what a military briefing is. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, then tell them what you told them. Every time someone said to me, I want to try dirty talk, but I'm too nervous. I don't know what to say. Yeah, do that. I'm going to fuck the shit out of you. I'm fucking the shit out of you. I fucked the shit out of you. That's dirty talk. I'm going to come on your face. I am coming on your face. I came on your face. I'm going to piss on you. I am pissing on you. I pissed on you. All this time, I've been giving that advice. I had no idea that I was urging people to do what 
military intelligence officers do when they're briefing members of Congress or anybody else. All right, that doesn't really address your question. Your question, ah, maybe above my pay grade, and you're tossing it out there to my listeners, most of whom are Americans, and Americans are famously not multilingual. Very few Americans speak more than one language. So this shifting between languages where you've noticed some things work for you, caller, some things work for you in your second and third language that don't work for you in your mother tongue, in your first language, maybe in your first, I think you say in your first language, some of the things you're having to say seem harsher. The fix there would be to say things in your, the other two languages that you speak, provided of course that the person you're saying those things to also speaks those languages, considering that you are in Brussels, uh, I've been to Brussels. I was just there with my husband. My second visit to Brussels, absolutely love Brussels and Belgium. Most of the people we met there, unlike the Americans that we know and are, speak more than one language. So it seems to me that that's the obvious fix. But if that's not working for you, if you're more comfortable speaking in your mother tongue when you're having sex, and it sounds a little rougher, a little rougher, can be good. I had a German boyfriend many, many, many years ago who didn't speak much English and wasn't comfortable speaking to me in English. And so our fix for dirty talk was he spoke German. And it was one of the things that helped me at that time pick up a little inappropriate German. I never got fluent. I got in the 80s uh, what we called sex and supermarket German. I could, uh, with my German language skills, get groceries and get laid, but that's all I could get. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get into school. Uh, so yeah, maybe your sex partners, if they don't speak the language you're most comfortable speaking in, dirty talking in from, you know, circumstance and context, they'll be able to infer your meaning and maybe pick up a little more of whatever language it is that you're speaking at that time. All right. If there's anybody out there who's had some experience switching between languages during dirty talk and notice that you're more comfortable saying sometimes the exact same thing in English or French and less comfortable saying that exact same thing in German or Dutch. Give us a call. Let us know about your experience as a multilingual dirty talker, an experience very few Americans can say that they've had. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a mid-30s cis-het woman who is recently divorced. My ex and I were together for eight years, married for two. It's been hard for me to admit that he was abusive in our relationship, mostly because it was never physical. It was the way that he would threaten me, intimidate me, isolate me. I'm making a lot of progress getting past all of this, but the one thing I can't let go of is the thought of his ex. I've never met this girl. She always lived in another part of the U.S. But over the course of our relationship, I heard a lot of stories about her being crazy and doing dramatic things that now I question because I understand who my ex is a lot better. My question for you is, is there anything to be gained from contacting this girl to ask her about my ex and help me realize that he's always been controlling and abusive. It just took me eight years to see it. Is there any kind of like validation worth getting from this? If 
longer time frame. They broke up about a decade ago. They are recently Facebook friends, but I, you know, I don't think they've seen each other or had any like real contact outside of that. You were with your ex-husband for eight years. You know who he is. You know him better probably than anyone else, assuming his ex-girlfriend that he called crazy and said did dangerous, stupid things. She was probably with him for a shorter amount of time, considering when in your lives these relationships probably fell, than you were with your ex-husband. I would encourage you, rather than contacting this ghost, this person from the past that you've never been in contact with before, rather than contacting her, just tell yourself that you were right about your ex-husband, that he was emotionally abusive, the way he threatened you and yelled and screamed at you and isolated you and you were, you were right to get out of that relationship and get away from that man. I don't think you need to hear from an ex-girlfriend of his that he treated her in a similar way or she came to the same conclusions about who your ex-husband is that, that you did for you to know that you did the right thing in getting out of this marriage and getting away from this man. I think when you say, what is there to be gained, that's the obvious thing that you would hope to gain in that kind of a conversation. Confirmation that you're not crazy. All right, well, the fact that you feel on some level that you might need that kind of confirmation makes me worry about how you'll feel if you don't get that confirmation from her. It's possible that, you know, for everything shitty thing that your ex-husband said about his ex-girlfriend that he's now Facebook friends with, that she had a very different experience of being in the relationship with him, that she may even have fond memories. On some level, she's willing to at least publicly associate with him again, be Facebook friends, linked on Facebook with him. And so what if what you hear from her isn't, oh yeah, he was awful to me and abusive what if you hear something that complicates how you feel that causes you as your ex-husband attempted to cause you to doubt your own sanity? So yeah, if you need something from her, my concern is how you'll react, how you'll feel. I don't think you'll get back together with your ex-husband, but how you'll feel if you don't get from her the confirmation that I have to assume you're hoping to get from her, that you're right about him, that he is awful and controlling and abusive. And the fact that she's willing to, again, be Facebook friends with him now would argue against her having come to the same conclusion. Maybe she wasn't with him as long as you were. Maybe he didn't show his full ass to her the way he showed his full ass to you. And I think there's some risk there for you personally. It also could be a risk for her to hear from you. Maybe she doesn't want to hear from you. Maybe she doesn't want to hear from him and only, you know, accepted his Facebook friend request because she didn't want him blowing up at her for refusing his Facebook friend request. Ugh. Seems to me that you know everything you need to know about your ex-husband, including, you know, always a really bad sign when the person you're with speaks very negatively about 
their exes or their ex, all of them or one of them, but if they speak ill of all of their exes, they're the common denominator in a lot of shitty relationships. So he's out of your life. Getting in contact with someone who is now back in his life is to drag him potentially back into your life. Move on. Trust your own judgment. Trust the conclusions you came to during your marriage about who your husband or who your ex-husband was and is. You don't need to hear from someone that you've never met and that you don't know to know that you did the right thing getting out of this marriage and getting away from this man. Hi, Dan et al. I'm an early 30s cis bi woman in a large city in Canada, and I'm in a monogamous relationship with a heteroflexible male partner. And I have a question about monkeypox. Obviously, I know that I'm personally not at great risk for this, but um, before COVID, my partner and I used to go to a bathhouse and sex club that caters to people of all different genders and sexual orientations. We've only gone once in the last two years because of COVID. We went right before Delta and we haven't gone at all since. And I know that men who have sex with men are at highest risk and that monkeypox is transmitted through close contact and fluid exchange. But given the possibility of fluids being, you know, around at the club, what is our risk if we were to go? Um, even if we'd almost certainly only have sex with each other, which I figure makes it a lot safer. But I'm still wondering, is there like an appreciable risk? I'm not planning on going anytime soon because BA5 transmission is still so high in the community right now and I don't want to get COVID again. But I'm just wondering, is it advisable to go to a sex club at all right now, all other things being equal? Uh, a lot of other people who go there are straight, but just as many are bi or gay and a lot of people who go there are um, not monogamous. Um, so I just wonder about the risk factor for, you know, even people who are not men who are having sex with other men. Um, I'm thinking in particular about the pool and the hot tub, but fluids could be anywhere in, uh, in there. Joining me to help tackle this question, Benjamin Ryan is an independent science reporter who has been covering infectious disease and LGBTQ health for two decades. He's been covering monkeypox for NBC News, also contributes to the New York Times, The Guardian, other publications. Hey, uh, Benjamin, how are you doing? Can I call you Ben? You can. Thanks for having me. So would you go to a sex club right now? People try to bait me into that on Twitter where they ask what I would do and like, I'm not going to go there. But what's important is to look at what are the sources of evidence of what we do know right now? Where are the clues in the science about how this virus tends to transmit? A lot of people talk in terms of cans or can'ts, but it's much more valuable to talk to in terms of likelihood. So there was a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that came out a couple of weeks ago. These researchers from all over the world pooled 528 cases of monkeypox, and they estimated that 95% of them were transmitting via sex between men, and only 0.6% were likely due to household contact, and 0.8% due to non-sexual close contact. So this gives you a sense of what the likely huge gulf there is between sexual contact, including intercourse and all the other kinds of close skin student contact that comes in that context, and then other sources. So yes, it is possible, researchers tell us, that the virus can transmit through services, in particular bedding and towels and that kind of thing. So if you were in a sex club and somebody had a lesion and it touched some sort of surface and that touched you, yes, it is possible. But the question is, how likely is it? And so that's one thing that a lot more research is needed for, but that can sort of help to 
help to hopefully guide our anxieties and our decision-making. But to this woman's point, this is the classic scenario that people worry about. Men who have sex with men who also have sex with women, that could lead to transmission among women. But another question is, how far will those transmission chains, so to speak, go? Because are these women, in turn, engaging in lots of multiple sex partners that, in turn, you know, lead to transmission out into the further community? And researchers don't think that that would necessarily be the case outside of men on sex with men. Okay, but I think it would be probably good commonsensical advice to tell her that if she and her heteroflexible male partner go to this sex club together, that he might not want to be so heteroflexible. He might want to flex in the hetero direction and for the moment not have sex with other men and then have sex with her. What you just described was... They said they were only going to having sex with each other in this club. So that was sort of a line that they drew. So that's... Right. So I'm reinforcing the choice that she said she was going to make, like stick to each other. Uh, But, but I got it. I got it. I wonder, I looked at that study that you're talking about and I wonder, you know, it it does seem to me that if it was easily transmitted via surfaces, a lot more people would have it than do. But somebody who's, you know, having sex with somebody is also coming into contact with surfaces that that person might have come into contact with. If you're having sex with somebody in your bed on their sheets, how do you rule out that some of the infections were from surfaces, but there was also sex or that the surface exposure wouldn't have led to an infection when there was also sex? If you could take the sex out of it, would there be more representation in this data? I think what we can do is we can go to the first thing you said and say that there are myriad ways in our lives that we share towels and surfaces and utensils and rooms and all these other ways, and that men who have sex with men and gay gay bisexual men are sharing towels with people and lying down on the couch with other people in a non-sexual way. So if all these fomites, as they're called fomites, that surfaces that can transmit a pathogen, indeed very readily transmitted this virus, we would see more cases in which these people were coming in with monkeypox and had had no contact with men and sex men whatsoever. Um, so that's, that's a clue there. This reminds me of oral and HIV in the 80s. There mm-hmm. was a moment where the advice we were getting when public health departments finally started giving gay men advice was you should use a condom for oral sex. Mm-hmm. And gay men just didn't. And then there was this moment we all looked at each other and went, well, if you could get it through oral, we'd all have it. And we all don't. So you obviously can't get it through oral. If you could get it easily. Well, I remember you saying that in the 90s, and I've quoted you ever since. (laughs) And I got blowback for saying that. I tried. uh, I was, you know, very young, eager teenager, you know, 18-year-old in 1996. And once someone wanted to have oral sex, I suggested using a condom. It was so hysterical to this person that, like, word got around Seattle that I had requested this absurd thing. So yeah, that that sort of tells you something about how few gay men observe that protocol. The same applies here. If it was easily transmitted via surfaces, we would have seen more straight people who were at work with somebody who had monkeypox and didn't yet know or had been diagnosed. And we would see more infections among straight people, among casual contacts than what we're seeing, which is all almost all, overwhelmingly, right. 96-plus percent sexual contacts. And it's important, what you said was more easily. You didn't say can't. It just suggests that the virus transmits much more readily through very close contact, and that perhaps sometimes does transmit through these other means, but it's much less likely. And one thing that people, there's a lot of rumors that go on on Twitter, etc. Oh, well, no one is testing women and children. They get turned away. 
And okay, so maybe that does happen in some cases, but here's what we do know. If you look at the United Kingdom, they have a lot better data we do about their monkeypox outbreak, and they have data on test positivity rates. So if you know different groups of people come in and they test at different rates, you can look at their test positivity rates to get a sense of whether there's truly a disparity of, of disease among them. Or, or, and that essentially the, the test positivity rates controls for those differences in testing rates. In the UK, the test positivity rate for men is about 52%. For women, it's about 2%. And then for people under 18, it's well under 1%. So this helps guide our understanding that, yes, women and children, A, are being tested at a lower rate than men, but for good reason, probably, because they probably don't have monkeypox. Okay, so final ruling for this caller. You can go to the sex club. You can have sex with your partner. If you're not going to have sex with anybody else, you're safe. Bring your own towel. You can't rule out that the surface is there. You could contract monkeypox. Well, that's why I said bring your own towel. You can lay down in your own towel. But if if you were looking for surfaces that might have monkeypox on them, going to a sex club with heteroflexible people would be the place to find them. So I would say that, like, it is conceivable that those could transmit but it's much less likely than you if you actually had sex with those people. Okay, then you're kind of sort of answering my question at the beginning that you didn't mm. want to answer. You wouldn't go to a sex club right now, neither would I. Not going to answer it. <laughs> but but one thing we both do want to emphasize, I'm a gay man, you're a gay man. Mm. Monkeypox is not spontaneously generated during gay sex. So it's not like gay sex is going to kill us all or get everybody infected. Um, we need to isolate people who are infected. They need to stay at home. That's what isolation means. It doesn't mean like social isolation and get everybody that we can vaccinated and contain this thing. And to consider behavioral change. All should be on the table. Consider. That's a weasel word. Like I've been jumping down who and CDC's throat. Like maybe gay men should possibly consider maybe temporarily altering their sexual. No, like you should do it. People are more receptive to the message if you invite them to a conversation than to telling them what to do. You know, that's essentially... Knowing how people are, if I say, everyone needs to stop, if I'm Larry Kramer and just, you know, get a megaphone and everyone should stop doing everything, people will tend to recoil. I'm in the telling people what to do business. To a dialogue, you know, you're more than welcome to, but that's sort of, that's, that would be my sort of approach to sort of have people more, more receptive to the idea. Benjamin Ryan, independent science reporter covering monkeypox for NBC News. You have done heroic work covering monkeypox, wow. getting the word out. Thanks. Check out his Washington Post op-ed headline, You Are Being Misled About Monkeypox. Everybody needs to read it. Ben, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dan. I'm a six-year-old man who was married and has three children. And about five years ago, my wife died. I always knew I was gay, but I was raised in a Catholic Italian family. And that's what I was supposed to do. After my wife died, I was like a kid in a candy store. I couldn't get enough. I lived alone, so I was free to do whoever and whatever I pleased. COVID hit, so things slowed down tremendously. But then after things opened up again, I met this guy. And him and I hit it off really well. The sex was tremendous. We both were able to enjoy each other's bodies. and There was no complaints. But all of a sudden, the last four or five times we've been together, he hasn't been able to ejaculate or have an orgasm. And that bothers me for a couple reasons. One, I'm thinking, is it me? Am I not doing something to please him? And, of course, I would ask him that, and he said everything was great. And second of all, I really like cum. 
I like the taste of it. I like having it in my mouth. I like having it on my body. I like cleaning off a dick after it explodes. These are all things that really pleasure me. And because you can't ejaculate, it's not happening. I'm sure you're going to say, well, have you talked to him about it? I have. He says there's nothing wrong. I asked him if he was on some new medication, and he said no. The only thing he takes is Viagra, which I guess explains why he stays hard but doesn't climax. I'm concerned. I really don't want this relationship to end. Is it me, or is there some other reason that he's not telling me? I really feel that I have to say something about fact that you married a woman despite always having known that you were gay. You say that you were raised Catholic and Italian. I was raised Catholic and Irish. Marrying a woman or going into the priesthood, those were my options. And we're not that far apart in age, actually. And yeah, I, I, just, I just have a little bit of a sad for your wife. I know nothing about your relationship. You don't offer much information about your marriage. I hope it was loving and you were able to make her feel good about herself. A lot of people who wind up married to closeted gay men or lesbians wind up carrying with them all their lives this pain, this sense of that there's something wrong with their marriage that they can't name, that they don't know, and they wonder all their lives. As you're wondering now, caller, with your uh, current boyfriend, if they're doing something wrong, if you're doing something wrong, like, well, what is it about me that's, you know, not working in this relationship that I'm not feeling perhaps the way I should feel. And it was nothing wrong with the straight spouse in that situation. It was that they were married to a closeted person who couldn't ever really fully, truly love them both sexually and romantically. Now I'm a big advocate of the companionate marriage and not everyone who wants a long-term relationship or seeks one out is looking for sex much or any at all. And it could be that your life with your wife and the kids that you two had together and the time that you spent together was low conflict and loving. And it was all she wanted and you met every need, but I have concerns. I have concerns when gay men say I couldn't be out. Uh, therefore I had to, and I'm sorry, we're close to the same age, Catholic family, Irish family, Italian family. It's 2022, backing up 30, 40 years, you could have been out. You could have. And I, I don't want to bag on you. I just, I just want to live in a world where this doesn't have to happen anymore. And I'm not laying the blame at your feet for this having happened in your life and your wife's life. And for all we know, it was a loving marriage and you made your wife very happy and I'm glad for that, if that's the case. Um, and it, it's not your fault. You didn't create the social or religious settings that made it difficult for you to be out. And there are certainly people right now who are 18 years old, who are raised by families or grew up in religious traditions where they don't feel that being out and gay or out and lesbian or out and bi or out as trans is possible for them. And I want to say it's more possible now than it has been historically. And the more people who make it possible for themselves, the less likely people are in the future 
to choose the closet and potentially, again, caller, not saying this is what you did, potentially harm the people that we either yank into the closet with us, you know, secret relationships, or who are basically the closet door that we're hiding behind. All right, to answer your question, Occam's Razor, your boyfriend who had no problem coming before is telling you he's taking Viagra. Maybe that's why he's having problems ejaculating. Some men who take Viagra stay hard, stay hard, but it makes it more difficult for them to climax. Perhaps he upped his dose recently, which can also make it difficult. You should say to him, look, sometimes when I come over, don't take Viagra. Even if your erection comes and goes or you're half hard when you come, like sometimes I just want the jizz. And yeah, it doesn't sound like you're doing anything wrong. It wasn't a problem before. It became a problem in just the last three or four times. Maybe he's still adjusting. You know, Maybe he switched from Viagra to Cialis or Cialis to Viagra. And it's going to take him a minute to find the groove and blowing those hot sticky loads again that you waited most of your life to get to, to get to eat, to get to swallow, to get to lick up. So good for you. Glad you're happy now. Hope your wife was happy then. Hi, Dan. I am the mother of an almost 15-year-old non-binary asexual child, and we live in the Deep South where Abortion is no longer legal because of trigger laws, and so I ran out and bought a bunch of Plan B while I still could. And my concern is that the next thing coming is losing access to birth control. At some point, my child has a uterus, and at some point, we were going to get them an IUD for protection because they may be asexual, but rape happens in college, and college is on the horizon for this child, and we want them to be protected, especially since they can't get an abortion here anymore if something does happen. And so my concern is that IUDs, which is the route that my child would prefer, are going to become illegal. But right now, they're only 14. They've never had an OBGYN exam. Getting an IUD is uncomfortable at best and slightly painful at worst and can be more painful if things don't go perfectly. And I don't want to put my child through that. We were going to wait until they were about 17 to do this. But now I think I need to hurry up and do it while it's still legal and we still can. And you know, IUDs are good for a long time, but 14 is still so young. Don't assume because your kid is asexual that your kid won't be sexually active or choose to be sexually active, not sexually assaulted or raped. I hope that doesn't happen to your kid or anyone else's kid. But a lot of asexual people choose to have sex for reasons that have nothing to do with a desire for sex. There can be a desire for physical intimacy. Some people identify as asexual and then begin to identify as gray sexual. If you go on to the Asexuality Visibility Network, or you go into any asexuality boards, you'll find lots of sexually active asexual folks. So I just want to emphasize that. So if there are other parents out there listening who have kids who identify as asexual, that doesn't mean you're going to be able to avoid conversations about sex, safety, consent, contraception, abortion, or anything else. You still need to have those conversations with your kid who at this stage of their life identifies as asexual. And I don't want to say that in such a way where I'm casting doubt on the legitimacy of asexuality as an identity or a sexual orientation 
The research and data are in. It is a sexual orientation and it is a perfectly legitimate one. I think, though, for a lot of young teenagers, it can also be a bit of a refuge. It can be a place where you feel safe to hit the pause button and say, no, I'm not interested in sex right now or sex is big and scary and I want my lack of, perhaps not lack of desire, but lack of desire to engage sexually with my peers or anyone else respected. So I'm identifying as asexual right now in the same way that some gay men and lesbians identify as bisexual as part of their coming out process. And that doesn't mean bisexuality doesn't exist. And there aren't bi guys and bi women out there. Some people, particularly I think younger people, will identify as asexual. Not to hide, not because they're in denial, but to hit the pause button again when sex is big and scary. Sex is always going to be big and scary. It's big and scary throughout your life, but I think it's particularly big and particularly scary for people going through puberty. All right. You can get an IUD. A teenager can get an IUD. I think the person you need to talk to is not your local sex advice podcast monkey. I think the person you talk to is your non-binary teenager about what particular method of birth control they're most comfortable with as they get a little bit older. 14, college is a few years away, three or four years away. If college is the concern, there's time. Still, there are a lot of queer kids out there, including, you know, asexuality is under the queer umbrella. Asexual kids who become sexually active have the conversation with your 14-year-old now. That is an age-appropriate conversation to have about sexual activity, about birth control, about consent, about uh, abortion, and acquaint them with all of their options. And yeah, these are scary times. Who knows if birth control where you live is going to be legal in a few years? Who knows what the Republican Party uh where it has complete control of a red state is capable of, or what the Republican party, if it takes control of both houses of Congress and the white house again is capable of. That is why right now, right now is a great time to go get a whole big pile of plan B, get all the condoms you can fit in a drawer, uh, get M and M's medication abortions, get those pills, put them away. They have a shelf life of up to five years. So you can get all that now, have them in a drawer where your teenager knows they are and they're accessible to them and they will get your teen all the way through to their sophomore year of college. Hi, Dan, a 45-year-old cishet woman here, longtime Magnum listener with a question around pronouns for you. A little background first. I'm one of eight children raised strict Christian in a small town, North Carolina. My father let us know that she is a trans woman a few, few years ago, and I fully support and cheer her on. I could not be more proud of her for her courage. It amazes me. As you can imagine, it has not always been easy. I always use she, her pronouns when talking about her, even when she is not around. I feel that's very important. And I and a couple other siblings have confirmed repeatedly that we should continue to refer to her as our father rather than our parent. And we call her dad in addition to her first name. She says she'll always be our dad, and I couldn't love her more. My question is this. 
What pronouns do I use when talking about memories and stories that happened in the first 40-ish years of my life when those stories involve my dad? I want to honor her. However, during that time, I experienced her as my father, the main example of masculinity in my life as a child and a young adult. I find it extremely difficult to refer to her as her when referencing that time in our lives, because in those memories, she was a man, and I and everyone around me interacted with her from that frame of reference. It does feel a bit odd to switch pronouns based on a timeline of before and after, but it also feels very odd to talk about those memories with female pronouns. I'm working on trying to use as few pronouns as possible in these instances, but I find it hard to avoid altogether, and I get mentally tripped up and don't know what to do. I thought that if anyone might have a good opinion, it would be you. Do I switch to she, her pronouns for all time periods? And if so, any thoughts on how to not feel that I am having to recreate my own history? Chrissy Stroop is an ex-evangelical writer who came out as a trans woman in 2019. She co-edited Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church, an essay anthology with Lauren O'Neill. She's a columnist for Open Democracy, a senior correspondent for Religion Dispatches. Her work has appeared in Foreign Policy, the Boston Globe, Playboy, Day Magazine, and other outlets. Hey, Chrissy, thank you so much for coming on the Lovecast. Hey, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so first, for listeners who may not be familiar with the term, what is an ex-evangelical? I think most of my listeners could put that together, but just in case. Yeah, you know, it's sort of a contraction um, of, well, it's just a sort of shortened form of ex-evangelical. Blake Chastain coined that term and hashtagged it and uh, used it for a podcast that he does. And it basically means you you spent some significant amount of time in your life as an evangelical Protestant Christian. Most of us who kind of have come to identify with that term grew up that way. Some people converted, you know, in college or as adults, maybe spent a decade or two or three in evangelicalism and then, and then left it. So it doesn't say anything about where you are now in terms of faith in God, you know, and that actually confuses a lot of people. Uh, evangelicals are kind of in a moral panic about it now, but some of them seem to have the impression that we're like the new emergent church or something, that we're all a bunch of like heretical Christians. Some people seem to think we're all atheists. I have seen myself described as both an atheist and a Christian blogger or writer on different sites. I am an atheist personally, but you know, a lot of ex-evangelicals still have faith of some kind. They're just not comfortable with that authoritarian controlling faith. And usually that means they embrace bodily autonomy, moral autonomy, you know, LGBTQ rights and acceptance and so forth. But some people in the evangelical community think you mean like X games or extreme sports when people say <laughs> X evangelical, that it itself is some sort of like hipster church movement when it's not. Yeah, some people do seem to think it's the new hipster church movement, which no, no. And by the way, those are all like phony. They're they're just, you know, the same anti-gay theology, but now it's cool. Uh, yeah, there's a guy playing uh, the electric guitar up there and the preacher's wearing $2,000 sneakers. <laughs> how could they not be down with the, the women and the queers? You came out as ex-Christian uh, before coming out as trans, I assume you're from an evangelical family, mm -hmm. family of origin. Oh, yeah. Which which was harder? <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting question. And it's funny because there's so much gatekeeping sometimes that you see on social media over the term coming out. And do people who you know grew up religious and then they have to tell their family that they're atheists get to use the phrase coming out at all? I mean, I think they do because it can, you know, be a very difficult thing to do. I honestly don't know. I mean, I guess... 
probably coming out as trans was harder. And that was a process where I first came out as queer, tried to hint. I mean, I saw my parents moderating on some things as, mm. as I got older. My mom was a fan of Glee. And then we, I would watch trash TV with her, Hallmark movies or whatever, Dancing with the Stars. And I remember when Chaz Bono was on Dancing with the Stars, and mom seemed to really find him, you know, his relationship with Sharon inspiring. I thought she sort of got some things. And then I come out as trans to her, and she freaks out and says she's never seen anything feminine in me. <laughs> you know? I mean, actually, I was a coward. I had my dad tell her while they were driving home from two hours away when I was living with them for a short time in 2018 <laughs> so that he could try to break the news, and she was still very upset when she got home. It's been three years, roughly. Have they made progress? Yes. Um, you know, um, my dad is the more accepting and affirming one. And he was an evangelical music pastor growing up. My mom was a Christian school teacher. So I'm from one of those like ministry kid families. Uh, yeah. You and me both. My dad was a Catholic <laughs> deacon. My mom was a Catholic lay minister. They were involved in evangelical Catholicism, which was a mm. thing in the 60s and 70s. It's oh, a thing yeah. nobody talks about anymore. Um, I think it's harder for evangelical Protestants to, to come out as queer to their parents because they seem more welded to the homophobia and transphobia than a lot of Catholics are because Catholics have been making it up a little bit on their own for a long time. Really, <laughs> since the pill came along, Catholics mm -hmm. have been like, ah, some choices we're going to make without running to the bishop. Quickly, though, that, that that idea that there's gatekeeping around the use of the term coming out, it's such a useful metaphor. And as long as people credit queers with its origin, I'm fine with people using come out to talk about coming out as ex-Christian. I've heard people talk about coming out to their families uh, as uh, regular pot smokers mm -hmm. during campaigns where there's going to be a vote on legalizing recreational marijuana in a state. I, I don't have any problem with that. I don't understand why we want to go, oh, that's just ours and that's appropriation. You can't have it. As long as you remember that we came up with that mm -hmm. and it described something very painful, the closet, I, I have no problem with other people using it. I completely agree with you. I think it's a good metaphor for a, a number of things. And yeah, recognize that history there. But, you know, why does it have to be exclusive to one thing? It's a very, it's a very powerful metaphor. And there are other things that you keep closeted in your life. I mean, one of these is, you know, if you're in the South or parts of the Midwest, I mean, it's very hard to be a non-religious person. So to me, it makes sense. <laughs> if you're going to run for office in this country, it's very hard to be a non-religious person. Mm. I really would like to give Barack Obama a truth serum and ask him under oath if he's <laughs> really a Christian or is that just one of the things he had to say to get elected president? Like in 2007, he said that when a man marries a woman, God is present and that's why he opposes same-sex marriage. I wrote him a check. I voted for him. You can do that. You know, uh, you can make those sorts of political calculations when they're making political calculations. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get to the, the caller's question. Um, sure. It sounds like she's doing really well and being very accepting and it's hung up on just this one thing mm -hmm. you know she uses the correct pronouns when she talks about her dad i feel awkward calling him <laughs> oh my god i feel awkward <laughs> calling her dad because it's going to make me trip up with pronouns she mm -hmm. uses the correct pronouns talking about her dad but when she talks about her memories of her dad she mm -hmm. finds it difficult mm -hmm. to to use the correct pronouns what would your mm -hmm. advice be or insight be the first thing is, you know, when I listened to that, yeah, I thought, wow, this is a great daughter. She is really making all the effort. She's being accepting. You know, I, I wish things had been that easy with my family. I mean, I'm everything but estranged from my sister at this point over this kind of stuff. You know, I do actually have a good relationship with my parents, but they don't. 
I mean, I don't even feel like mom is trying most of the time to get my name, my name and pronouns right. Dad gets them right sometimes. Um, so, you know, that's a great start. And just to ask the question is, is good, too. Um, you know, seeing her then think, well, this kind of really rewrites my own history or my own memories. I honestly kind of do. I can empathize with, with that to a degree. There's, a, there's an adjustment when someone comes out as trans uh, in, in your life as an adult. And it's been a long time that you've known this person. Uh, and when it's your family, I think there's definitely going to be a period of, of adjustment. And um, so it's it's good if possible to show a little grace for people. At the same time, you hope that they're not going to be centering themselves and making it all about them, which it doesn't mm. seem like like this daughter is doing for, for the most part. And, you know, it's a complicating factor with her dad still being willing to be called dad. And so it's just complicated, right? But I think mm. the, the number one piece of advice I would give to people in similar situations like this is talk to... I mean, it sounds like you're close to your, your dad. Talk to her about it. You know, ask her what, what she would like. You, I, I, a number, you know, I've, I've often heard trans people say, and I like to say it myself, if you've uh, met one trans person, you've met one trans person. So, <laughs> Oh my God, that's, that's so smart. Some of us have different feelings about this sort of thing. And particularly, you know, when you do transition as an adult, for me, it's a little bit complicated. Personally, I look back at my childhood and was I a little boy? Sort of. I mean, <laughs> I felt I always felt weird and uncomfortable in my own skin. And I think that under other circumstances, I would have figured this out earlier. But so, you know, if you want to honor your dad, as it clearly sounds like, you know, she does talk to her, ask her how she feels about thinking about the past. It's probably complicated for her too, and just open it up, ha have a good, you know, safe conversation and see what comes out of that would be my advice. I'm sorry to hear that your family still struggles with your pronouns and your name. Um, Thanks. It made me think of the time in my life, you know, 40 years ago when I came out and my family struggled with words like boyfriend. Like mm -hmm. My boyfriend would be there and he would be introduced to somebody as this is Dan's friend. There was always this beat where boy belonged and should go and was clearly in their head. And it took them time to get there, but they got there. And, 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 you mm -hmm. know, you want to show grace and I showed grace. I also rolled my eyes. I also <laughs> sometimes argued with my family and made it clear to them that I found this annoying and that I would only put up with it for so long. And like after I came out, like the person that I thought they thought I was, I wasn't that person. And it took them some time to like get into the person I was groove. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably very true. You know, you've only been out as trans for three years. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so hard to tell sometimes with family what's malicious and what's just habit. And how right. you, like it's it's almost on you to to try to figure out what's malicious, what's habit, you know, what's ill intent, what's assholery. And then if it's not malicious, guide. And if it is assholery, like foot down. Mm -hmm. And just how do you navigate the the complexities uh, of family life. I don't think there's a one uh, one size fits all solution to that, and particularly when you're dealing with this, you know, intensely religious background. And the religious authorities, you know, most of them in your parents' lives are, you know, have always been saying, well, you can't accept queer people. At least you have to think that it's that it's a sin. And then there's, there's lots of discussion among evangelicals these days that it's wrong to accept trans people's pronouns you know i mean we've gotten to the point uh, we've gotten past you know the whole abomination thing but now they're making these arguments that 
no, you can't honor their pronouns even just out of respect. That would be being complicit in their sin. And I guess that's a sin by proxy. <laughs> They're writing this kind of stuff in Christianity yet, today. <laughs> we have to go around all the time <laughs> pretending that their religion isn't a pile of steaming horseshit. Like when I meet somebody <laughs> who's an true. evangelical <laughs> Christian, like at the airport sitting next to me on the plane, I'm not like, oh yeah, by the way, my moral <laughs> code requires me at this moment to say, there is no God. Your faith is bullshit. The Southern Baptist tradition is <laughs> fundamentally racist and evil at the, to the roots and and fuck you like i don't say that right we don't I'm like respectful <laughs> oh you're around i've had i've had an evangelical pastor introduce me sitting next to me on a plane in first class of course um me on miles and somebody else's dime evangelical pastor in two thousand dollar tennis shoes flying in first class what's up with that and and tell me he's a you know an evangelical pastor and i'm like oh Oh, that's nice. <laughs> they and think it's like, normal conversation to be like, where do you go to church? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> the only thing worse right. than that is when you get seated on a plane next to this guy who's like predicting the rapture and he wants to go through the whole, all his scriptures and his numerology and tell you why he's right, that the rapture is definitely happening next month. And yeah, that has happened to me. <laughs> Anybody who wants to talk to you <laughs> on an airplane for any reason is a monster. It's just what kind of monster they are. You have to figure out. Uh, definitely right. sus, as the kids say. <laughs> Speaking of monsters, we've got the Tony Perkins of the world. We've got right-wing evangelical fundamentalist Christians. And one of the things that I see you pushing back against often on Twitter in some of your writing is this distinction that lefties want to make between good Christians, real Christians, and these assholes, that they're not real Christians. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, take care of the sick, take care of the poor. Jesus said, pay your fucking taxes. Not one word about abortion, not one word about gays. And so Tony Perkins isn't a real Christian. Why do you think that's unhelpful? Uh, I think, you know, when you use that kind of language, we often don't talk about or really notice Christian privilege, but but it is a thing. It's not evenly distributed across all Christian groups. It definitely uh, benefits white Christians and white Protestants the most. But we are subtly reinforcing Christian privilege and our Christian cultural hegemony when we equate the term Christian with good. You know, if you think about like, you know, the the movie version of uh, The Wizard of Oz and Auntie M saying, well, being a good Christian woman, I can't say it, what she really wants to say, you know, to, um, you know, the, the nasty woman who wanted to harm Toto. It's, we, we have this like, you know, oh, that's so Christian of you. This equation of the term Christian with good, of Christian behavior is good behavior, is something that linguistically exists in the English language for centuries. It's associated with other comments that we might think of as having to do something with like Victorian England, like your Christian name, older way of mm-hmm. saying your, your first name, that sort of thing. We don't have this knee-jerk impulse to equate uh, other religions with good, right? No one would be like, oh, you just paid for my bus ticket. That's so Buddhist of you. That's so Jewish of you. That's so Mm -hmm. Muslim of you. And so it really is reinforcing Christian privilege. And it also just erases so much of Christian history and the reality of Christianity today, which is very oppressive. I would say there's broadly two big strands of Christianity in Christian history, you know, uh, imperial or, you know, like pro-power Christianity and liberationist Christianity. There's a question of whether liberationist Christianity would need to exist without imperialist, colonialist Christianity. But, you know, it's it's good. It's a good thing. Christianity can be good, but it's not inherently. Most of its history is oppressive. And so it's simply wrong to say that oppressive Christians aren't really Christians. And you can tell why it would be a problem to say that's very Christian of you when you think about saying that's very Jewish of you or very Muslim of you. And it highlights Christianity as a dominant culture, because if somebody in our culture says that's very Jewish of you, probably not a compliment. 
Probably anti-Semitic. Same thing for that. Yeah. Very Muslim abuse, probably Islamophobic. What's going to come out of their mouth next or what they think was Jewish of you or Muslim of you. No one person is just one thing. You're not just an ex-evangelical, not just a trans woman with a lot of great advice for this. Uh, I think person whose heart is absolutely in the right place. You also have a PhD in modern Russian history. Yep. And I wanted to ask you before we got off the phone, what do you think is going to happen? How is mm. this going to end this Mr. Putin, this war? Boy, there is, there is no good end. To, I mean, the, a good end would be Putin just saying, okay, Ukraine, you can be autonomous after all, but that's, that's not going to happen. So I, I don't know where it's going. I'm, I'm very depressed by the whole Russian war in Ukraine and I'm seeing you know, some of my friends and colleagues, acquaintances from when I lived in Russia from 2012 to 2015 and taught at a Russian university in Moscow, things started to get worse then. But, you know, with this invasion of Ukraine, they've really ramped up and they're getting out of the country now. It's, there's now much more possibility of going to jail for just calling Putin's special military operation a war that it is for talking about and criticizing the human rights violations. It was already technically illegal to um, in, in Russia to call Crimea part of Ukraine, which it is according to international law. I mean, Russia annexed it in 2014. I was there. It was a very weird time. But I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. I'm not with the sort of Glenn Greenwald and Noam Chomsky crowd. I don't think we should just, you know, appease Putin or just let him have Ukraine. I, I do believe in, on a principled basis in national self-determination. Do I think that NATO has been perfect? No. Do I understand why certain East European countries wanted to join NATO after the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc collapsed? Because the people who lived in those countries didn't want to be communists and didn't want to be under, you know, de facto Russian rule anymore. Yeah, I also get that. Ukraine is a much better place to be a trans person, to be a gay person. I mean, it's not great, but it's better than Russia, you know, and that's yeah. part of the problem with why, with why Putin decided to invade it. Zelensky today uh, announced that they're going to study and make a move towards civil unions for same-sex couples because there's all these examples of queer Ukrainians taking up arms and then making the case that, you know, if I get, if I'm injured at the front, my partner should be able to come see me in the hospital. If I die, mm -hmm. my partner should get death benefits. And it's, it's staggering. It's such a like ancillary story to the, to, to the huge story of Russian imperialism. And once again, Ukraine becoming the bloodlands. It's a terrific book by, I think, David Remnick about the history of the region. But to see... To see this has been as, you know, particularly as a queer person, this thread in the Ukraine story for me has been inspiring and heartbreaking to watch. And, and, and I think I went to Russia in the 80s. I was there for the last party conference in 1990 wow. uh, in Moscow. And we bribed a guard to let us into the Kremlin, which was closed during the party conference and just kind of walked around. Well, that's incredible. I met, a lot of, I met a lot of young queer people. I was a young queer person myself. And my heart really breaks for them and yeah. I ache for everyone in Russia except the people stopping around with Z's on armbands mm -hmm. and um, particularly queer people in Russia right now and I ache of course most achingly for the people of Ukraine yeah yeah I'm right there with you it's it's been a very sad thing for me as someone who spent a lot of time uh, in Russia my first trip to Russia was in 1999 I never did get to see See it before you know the collapse of the Soviet Union, or even before the before the 1998 ruble default. 
Uh, I was there for kind of the end of the wild 90s, but I was on an evangelical short-term youth mission trip in a rural Russian summer camp. <laughs> well, that's a very unique experience. Yeah, I went back for that the second one other year. And then, you know, everything else I've done in Russia since then has been secular. I was already in a major crisis of faith. I was already kind of like, I don't really know about this missionary thing, but that's where my interest in Russia came from. <laughs> Well, I can't imagine people who downloaded my sex and relationship advice podcast today expected that we would go here, but it's really interesting to talk with you, uh, not just about trans stuff, evangelical stuff, but also this stuff. Thank you for your time. Chrissy Stroop, evangelical writer, co-edited Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church with Lauren O'Neill, columnist for Open Democracy, senior correspondent for Religion Dispatches. Terrific on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle for folks who aren't following you and need to start? Uh, it's at C underscore Stroop. So at C underscore S-T-R-O-O-P. Thank you so much, Chrissy, for jumping on the phone today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Hey, Dan. I am a 30-something woman, bisexual, in a relationship for over three years with a great guy. And I did something bad. We were together for a long weekend, and I found out his phone passcode because I saw him open it, and then I snooped. I had lots of opportunities when he was in the shower or whatever. And I did it like a couple times, like maybe four or five times over the course of the weekend. And I feel horrible about it. And I don't really even understand why I did it because I trust him. We're in an open relationship. So he's allowed to, you know, chat with whoever he wants. And, and I, I don't know what, what I was looking for, but I was looking through his WhatsApp messages in particular, the, the different chats he'd had with people. And I didn't find anything bad, but what happened is the last time I checked, I went to open it and I went to open WhatsApp and it was locked. So he had literally just that day put a lock on it so that you could only open it with um, a thumbprint or whatever. And I was like, shit, I'm freaking out because he must know that I was reading it. And I'm not really sure how, because I was really careful about, you know, where I placed the phone and what screen I left it on. I didn't open any unread messages. So I, I have no idea how he knows. It doesn't seem like he knows he doesn't seem mad at me. He hasn't confronted me, although he's not a very confrontational person. I don't know why I did it. I feel horrible about it, but do I, I don't know, do I need to confess this? I mean, does it, is it better if I just come clean? I'm actually dying of curiosity to know how he could possibly have known or suspected because I was so careful. I'm not going to do it anymore. I know it's wrong to invade someone's privacy like that, but I just feel really icky about it. And maybe I just need to sit in that ickiness and, and it's my own fault. I think you should give him a minute. If he slapped the password protection, the thumbprint password protection onto his phone mid weekend, yeah, there was probably something you did. Or maybe he saw you. Maybe the shower was running, but he came out of the bathroom to grab a towel. And because the shower was running, you didn't hear him step out of the bathroom. And he saw you with his phone in his hand and then went back into the bathroom and didn't say a word, but made a mental note to add that thumbprint password protection to his phone because... It was, you know, the charitable reading. Maybe he gave you a charitable reading. His phone sitting there was too great a temptation. 
And so he put a password on it or maybe he was angry and you say he's, you know, generally the kind of person who avoids confrontation. Maybe that was his way of confronting you was by slapping that thumbprint on. So yeah, maybe he's going to avoid confrontation. Maybe he won't bring it up. Maybe this was the stand he was going to take. But seems to me odds are greater that at some point, maybe after he's not angry or hurt about it, you know, when you can raise it calmly, he'll bring it up that weekend. Remember that weekend, you know, possibly you weren't as careful as you thought you were being possible. You accidentally touched, read, uh, you know, an unread message. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And maybe when he's not so angry about it, when it doesn't feel like it would be confrontational, he'll bring it up. If he didn't notice, if it was a coincidence, you don't necessarily have to bring it up. I sometimes think when you do a shitty thing, it's not the best policy to confess every shitty thing to your partner who wants to probably tell themselves they're not in a relationship with somebody shitty, that they are in a relationship with someone trustworthy. And we all, you know, understand that no one is a hundred percent trustworthy all the time, but we like to be able to round our partners up to as close to a hundred percent trustworthy all the time as we possibly can and confessing every shitty thing to them, particularly the things that we regret and that we're not going to do again can make it harder for our partner to stay in a relationship with us that they want to stay in. So on the off chance that he didn't notice on the off chance that it was a coincidence and knowing that you're never going to do this shit again, don't say anything, but brace yourself for the possibility. eh, I'd say the likelihood that he's going to say something. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Youth. I am a 26-year-old, non-binary, bisexual, polyamorous person living in the Midwest. I've recently entered into a handful of relationships. I, I live with uh, one of my partners, and we've been essentially monogamous for the last, I don't know, eight months, mostly because of COVID, also because I had broken up with my previous partner who I was living with at that time. And we both found ourselves in relationships with two people who are separately in their own relationship. So we have what could be viewed as a quad, but so far we have kept all of our individual branches of that relationship separate. I'm a little concerned uh, because my history with polyamory is mostly, you know, one-on-one relationships. I've never done a triad. I've never done any sort of group situation before. And one of the people in this in this pair that both of us have started separately dating uh, has expressed interest in myself and my partner who I live with as a unit. I'm apprehensive. I am concerned about complicated feelings and communication issues. And I heard them say that and got scared <laughs> immediately. So I'm wondering, my question is really, should I be scared? And what things can I do to help maybe prevent collapse in this case. I don't I don't want to ruin all of the relationships I have over this potential triad that's a part of the larger quad. Be afraid, be very afraid. It's questions like yours that make smug monogamous people feel like they've made all the right choices because they look at how complicated poly people's lives and relationships can be and they think ah shit's complicated enough but there are rewards 
there are upsides to navigating these complications. You know, Terry and I have been together a long time and we have plenty to talk about. That's what we always say. We're never bored. Poly people in complex polyamorous relationship configurations. There's always something to unpack. There's always something that needs to be discussed or worked through. All right, caller, you can't be drafted into a triad against your will. And there are reasons why the kind of polyamory some people practice where I have my partners, you have your partners, and there's no overlap. Some people prefer that model for this sort of reason. All right, you're in a polyamorous triad that's embedded in a polyamorous quad. And, you know, you're in a three-way relationship and you have a fight with somebody in your triad and the two other people in your triad gang up on you or your feelings are hurt and for some other reason, maybe it's not a conflict, but you're feeling less excited about the triad than your partner is feeling about the triad, but you also feel like you want to ruin things for your partner by exiting the triad. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And there's a lot of people's feelings to take into consideration to be in, you know, a, an open poly couple and you each have other partners or other sex partners, you know, openness ain't poly and poly requires some degree of openness. You could have other discrete, separ- uh, discrete, not in the, you know, keep it quiet sense, discrete in the separate and unique sense. You can have your own relationships with other people without introducing the complications of the triad. And if those sorts of complications, like watching your partner gang up with your secondary partner on you for whatever reason, or you not being so into it and wanting out and not feeling like you can get out, or just the dynamic, if that's not a relationship model that's appealing to you and it comes with its own set of complications, you can just say no. You aren't obligated to even consider it. You say that this person was considering the possibility of or wanting to propose the possibility of a triad. You can just rule that out. And maybe that's not the end of the discussion. You know that that person wants that. Maybe you'll feel more comfortable with that idea in time. You can bring it up in six months or a year if you feel differently. If you don't feel differently, you don't ever have to bring it up again. And if you don't feel differently and they bring it up again, you're allowed to knock it down again. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Memory Hole tweets, a woman's most powerful weapon is the control of her own pussy. If men could devise a way to physically take our pussies from us and sell them like meat, fur, and ivory, they would do it. Women, fight with everything you can to control your bodily autonomy. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I'm not sure what particular response or rant Memory Hole is referring to, but I have to say I agree with Memory Hole. I would only add that men who support the right of women to control their own bodies should join the fight too, if only to balance out the number of women out there fighting against other women's right to bodily autonomy. Tower NYC tweets regarding the giggler in Savage Lovecast episode 824, Golden showers don't have to be about humiliation. They can be about anointing the receiver, a gift, a blessing, a unifying experience. Good point. Peeing on someone doesn't have to be about humiliation. It can be about unification, unifying the caller's bladder in this case. 
one of the smaller organs in the body with the much larger organ of her husband's body, the largest organ of her husband's body, his skin. And finally, Tess Artist tweets, I cannot contain my enthusiasm for this OTP, which stands for One True Pairing of Interesting Conversation with at Fake Dan Savage and at Gareth Russell One. The two of them united. I don't deserve it. I've never been happier to be a Magnum sub than I am right now. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Hashtag Young and Damned and fair. We got tons of great response from Magnum subs out there who loved my recent sex and politics podcast conversation with historian Gareth Russell about his biography of Catherine Howard. She was Henry VIII's fifth wife. If you'd like to hear that convo along with my conversations with Michelle Goldberg from the New York Times and author Jill Filopovich and others, become a Magnum subscriber today. Magnum subs get extra long ad-free lovecasts, invites to our monthly Zoom hangouts, and sex and politics, our bonus podcast, all for 35 bucks a year. Subscribe now at savage.love. All right, thanks to everybody who posted your social media about the lovecast this week. It really helps get the word out about the show, and we really, really appreciate it. And now, listener response calls. Hi, Dan. Just a quick comment for the woman on the most recent episode who was worried that she and her boyfriend weren't having sex enough. My recommendation would be to schedule sex. I loved everything you said, but it it can also be a really great way to get rid of a lot of that anxiety because so much anxiety is based in the unknown. You don't know. You don't know what he's thinking, right? So take a minute, schedule sex, look at that schedule. Maybe it's every two, three weeks, and maybe you play and the sex a little beforehand during the day, but bring it out into the open and make it something that you regularly talk about so that you don't have to worry about it so much. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the caller on episode 824, who was afraid that she might start laughing or giggling when she was peeing on her partner, because that's what he wants, and what she should do about it. And I like to think that laughter is actually awesome in bed. And for me, some of my best sexual experiences have included everybody just having a major giggle attack together, and we're all just rolling with that. And it's really few things more releasing and cathartic than a good laugh attack, except for, well, you know, the other things we're doing sex for. And that she should just go for it. Lean into the laughter. Sex is joyous. Hey, Dan, this is the first caller from episode 824, where you excoriated me for wanting to tell my kids that I was going over to Hito during my uh, Jamaican wedding. And I want to thank you. You allowed me to um, get a win with my new wife now. We got married last week. It was great. We did not give the kids the details. We simply told them that we had met the other couple on a cruise. They didn't ask which one. We didn't give them details. And we told them that we were going over to a resort with them. And I woke up on Tuesday morning. A friend told me that uh, you had answered my question. I got to listen to it and listen to how you told me to shut the fuck up. And it was too much information. I didn't need to share that much, which was exactly my fiance's point. So I got to roll over in bed and tell my wife that she was absolutely right. So Dan, Nancy, um, thank you. Thank you for the Mazel Tov and, and thank you for allowing me to tell my wife that she was right. It did make her very happy. The only loss was you comparing me to Jerry Falwell Jr. 
And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. The Hump 2022 Fall Tour starts in less than a month. First up on September 10th, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then we're having an encore Hump 2022 screening here in Seattle. Before Hump heads to theaters in Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Minneapolis, Kansas City, Atlanta, Victoria, and Los Angeles. We'll also be streaming this year's lineup of amazing dirty movies, this year's Hump 2022 Film Festival, every weekend from August 26th to October 16th. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets to see Hump in a theater, as Hump was meant to be seen, or you can get tickets to stream Hump in the privacy of your own home. Again, at humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Chrissy Stroop on Twitter at C underscore Stroop. And follow Benjamin Ryan on Twitter at Ben Ryan Writer. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week on an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.